to be. Hold it. Do it right. He made a caca on the bed. Don't breathe on me, Adrian. I'm terribly sorry, but there seems to be some sort of misunderstanding. I hope they don't hang you, precious, for that sweet neck. podcast i'm your host anthony king this show is all about a love for author critic and historian danny perry and his cult movies books we're going to discuss a movie from the first book and we're going to offer up some pairing recommendations and back for a second time around it's author commentator podcaster sam deegan how are you sam i'm good how are you i'm happy to be back i'm excited to have you back Uh, before we get into our movie let me ask you do you have Any history with Danny and his books? Yeah, so I didn't find out about him till a little bit later. I think because most of the books I bought as like a young teenager were more horror focused. But when I discovered his work, it just kind of clicked in my brain, I think, because something that I found, especially as I got a little bit older and got into lots of different kinds of subgenres and wanted to go beyond horror movies or sci-fi movies or what people typically think of as like cult movie genres. Right. To me, it just started to feel kind of restrictive. Like I felt like I met all these horror movie fans who never wanted to watch anything else. And to me, it was like, there's this magical world out there. And <laughs> Danny's book, I think recognized that and you know I know that there's a whole argument that he makes around the idea of what are cult movies and I know you've talked about that a lot in past episodes but I just my sort of initial excitement was that somebody wanted to talk about these wildly different movies that aren't often discussed together with sort of the same level of interest and respect and I just I still think that lots of critics are really indebted to him for that. And I think that's a lot of what I sort of strive to do in my career is not make these weird distinctions like we could talk about Citizen Kane, but we can't talk about horror movies or we can't talk about hardcore movies like they're different. Right. I think Danny's books is sort of suggests that, no, they're not different. They're all movies. Definitely. And I think that that leads me into two things I want to talk to you about real quick before we get into the movie. And you have recently started a new podcast called Twitch of the Death Nerve with uh, your two buddies, Charles and John. And uh, I mean, it's no lie. I, I said it on Instagram and Twitter that it's my new favorite podcast uh, because it's a hell of a lot of fun. I've never heard Charles and and John talk before, so it's two new voices for me. And then, I mean, I'm always uh, 
excited to listen to you speak, but can you talk a little bit about what Twitch of the Death Nerve is all about? Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening and for all the support so far. Uh, Basically, I just sort of got to a point where I felt like, and this is horrible to say and makes me sound kind of entitled, but I think I got to a point with my freelancing career where I felt like I was just saying yes to other people's projects. And even though, you know, my my book came out earlier this year, uh, we talked about it on the Casablanca episode, The Legacy of World War II in European art house films. So obviously I did just finish a big project of my own, but I wanted something that felt fun, that like I was doing it just because I was gonna have a good time. And I think they felt the same way. And so the whole sort of purpose of Twitch of the Death Nerve is that we wanted to kind of honestly have the same approach as, as Danny's books, where we just, cover movies that we're really excited about and our goal is even though the title is you know taken from the wonderful mario bava film the focus isn't really on horror movies i mean so far we've done fulci's gates of hell which is obviously a horror movie but we've covered samurai films and a hardcore movie and we just did an episode all about animals attack movies and we've got a siege film coming up and a Hong Kong film. And so it's like, we're really trying to keep ourselves interested and cover things that excite us that we feel like don't get enough love. And so it's just sort of more broadly, maybe a psychotronic cinema podcast. Again, there was no lie when I was saying on, on Twitter that I feel like Twitch of the Deaf Nerve is, is like uh, the cool sister podcast of, cult movies because like you're you're covering like i mean god the the right out of the gate you're covering fulci uh and that's my favorite fulci film and so that was i was like jesus this is like a freaking dream here listening to you guys talk about it and in that episode you guys kind of uh talk about or it was the the intro episode you guys talk about the distinction even if there is one between psychotronic and cult and uh, you know, I, I really appreciated that because I don't want to say like, uh, cult movies are classier than psychotronic. Uh, but you know, I think psychotronic movies are more fucked up than, than cult movies. Yeah. Uh, you know, for like <laughs> what we're talking about tonight, you know, not a psychotronic film, but there, there might be, we'll get into it, but the, the Czech version, maybe that's a psychotronic version of beauty and the beast that you know who knows we'll, we'll, we'll get into that but you know i've said this to other podcasters on the show but you know i'm taking notes as i'm listening to you guys talk uh and you know getting movie ideas that i've never heard of and like most recently the animals attacks one was so <laughs> good like like so many besides the the top 10 slash 11 that you guys did like so many other titles just rattled off and i'm like jesus i haven't heard of any of these movies so like it's truly a blessing to be able to listen to you three talk. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think we sort of struggle with wanting because I would say my impulse is to do really deep cut title episodes. And I think John wants to do things that are more cult favorites. And so Charles is sort of the intermediary between the two of us who wants there to be 
things for people to discover and, you know, research and stuff like that, but also wants to make it fun. Right. And so I, I think our different personalities and our different sort of like relational dynamics are a lot of fun for me, at least. Definitely. To... <laughs> yeah, no, it's great to listen to. And so that kind of leads me into uh, you release uh, episodes a week early on your new-ish Patreon that you started. Uh, talk a little bit about what's going on over there. Well, so Patreon was something that I guess I felt a little weird about for a long time. I mean, I've had people encourage me to start one, but I guess I just finally realized that if I do want to try to spend more time focusing on my own projects and things that really excite me, the only financially feasible way to do that is to start a Patreon sure. because that way I can, you know, turn down a commentary that I'm not interested in, but still make the same amount of money doing, you know, video essays and, and things that are more exciting at the moment for whatever reason. So I've loosely been trying to do kind of themes. Like right now, my theme has been Mako Kaji films, mm -hmm. which was supposed to be August, but I've had so much fun with it that I think I'm going to keep doing it in <laughs> September, but probably it will be more broadly Japanese cinema, like 60s and 70s Japanese cinema. I've done a lot of video essays over there. Like you said, I released the podcast a week early. Um, I have some written essays, but it just seems like people engage more with video essays. Yeah. And yeah. it's it's nice for me because I, it gives me more practice editing video, which is something that's been a lot of fun to learn. Yeah. I think, isn't that just a perpetual question, video versus writing? I pride myself on my writing, but I also, you know, like last year I did a, a video essay for Salem Horror Fest on Maniac Cop. And it was, I mean, a shitload of work because it was like a 45 minute thing, but God, it was so much fun. And right? it is, oh gosh, you know, just searching for clips and pictures and then, you know, writing out your script and doing all that stuff. So, uh, I don't know, you know, and, and I think watching our friend Chris O'Neill's stuff that has, you know, appeared on, on numerous discs recently, uh, is also really inspiring. And, and I think that's really exciting, but I, I, I think that's really cool. You're getting into that because people know you for your commentaries, people know you for your essays, uh, and so you're you're kind of getting into this uh, newer-ish area for you, and it's it's really cool, and I'm I'm excited for you. So I encourage everybody to go check that out. Thank you. Let's get into the movie, Sam. Why don't you introduce what we're going to talk about this week? We are talking about one of the greatest films of all time, Jean Cocteau's La Belle et la Bête, or Beauty and the Beast, from 1946. Faire aussi 
which I was thinking about this earlier and I, I was trying to figure out why this feels like a cult movie. And it's it's one of those things that I think is probably hard to describe to somebody who's never seen it because it's so unique and there's so much crazy visionary surrealist stuff going on. But I think because it's been so influential and because so many later adaptations of Beauty and the Beast and even though later fantasy films have stolen from it, I think watching it now, it feels sort of shocking and dreamlike, but also familiar in a weird way yeah. because of how influential the imagery is. Absolutely. You know, I think uh, when you watch It Happened One Night, you see, you know, again, that's that's another one of my favorite movies of all time. You see like, oh, this is sort of like the impetus for the modern rom-com, right? Like everything, every modern uh, romantic comedy modern meaning like 60s and beyond that you've seen has taken something from that movie and so watching uh beauty and the beast for the second time i started to realize that and i think that's really exciting i think you hit the nail on the head that people a lot of times think of older movies as like boring and just old and i can't find any interest in that but when you get to something like Beauty and the Beast, you see its influence uh, in the movies that you love. So like, for instance, I think the most apparent influence comes in uh, Guillermo del Toro movies. I think he takes a lot from this movie. John Rollin definitely does too, on a less mainstream note. (laughs) Well, but I mean, that just everybody like so many people like people dealing in sort of these fantastical ideas like this is where they're taking from and the first time i watched this last year i liked it uh it was interesting but then the second time i watched it i mean it just like blew my mind and you start seeing these things and i love movies that you can just uh, continually watch and then you're getting something new from it uh, recognizing something from it every single time and I think this movie does that perfectly. Yeah, it's one of those. I mean, I, I think for me, this is true of all of Cocteau's movies. I just never will ever get tired of watching them. And they're definitely not movies that I watch like repeatedly all the time, because I think having that sense of, you know, OK, I'm going to watch this once every couple of years and it will be a totally different experience each time. And I, I think he is just so great as a as a writer because he's written a bunch of movies as well like definitely written more or co-written more than he directed but when he directs them they're just there's nothing else like it and I think you could certainly talk about his influences or people doing similar things but he sort of stands alone I mean I think he's one of the greatest artists of the last you know century i yeah i 100 percent agree with you now um speaking of kind of uh, that cult aspect of this film let me read a little something from danny here he says beauty and the beast is the cinema's most poetic work a beautiful dreamlike telling of the classic french fairy tale Long held dear by critics and film historians, it has turned up with increasing regularity over the last few years, early 80s here, 
the last few years in repertory theaters as well as being featured on PBS's film classics series, the result being that nowadays it seems to be the new all-time favorite film of about every other person you meet. Its popularity is not too hard to explain. First-time viewers are invariably impressed and surprised that such an unusual film exists, that Cocteau dared make a fairy tale without drastically changing the content of the original story, that he dared make a film with art and not box office success as the ultimate goal, and that he dared approach his film as a poet rather than as a typical movie director. And I think that's that's what makes him stand out. You know, I watched one other Cocteau. I watched... Um, Orpheus. Oh, and, so good. Uh, I didn't love that one. Uh, but again, that's, uh, I, I need to go back because obviously I'm wrong. No, but you just, it's one of those movies. And I strongly encourage anyone who's encountering him for the first time to keep this in mind. I feel like he's not necessarily one of those directors where you watch one of his movies and you're just instantly in love. I think maybe that might be true with beauty and the beast but with some of his other films like the orphic trilogy in general you really have to kind of meet it on its own terms and like give yourself a chance to get accustomed to it so i i do think it requires repeat viewings because yeah. it just is sort of mind melting <laughs> the first time you watch it oh my gosh like what i mean what what is that 50s 40s when or i think it's 49 or 50 okay so again like visionary uh and i i've said this before i don't know if i believe in the auteur theory but if you do john cocteau auteur i think uh would be uh, he would be considered that um, he would be mad yeah oh, yeah exactly um, <laughs> he wouldn't want to be called that <laughs> no that i mean uh, you know most of them don't i don't think but he's like <sighs> his mind is so creative and like just inspiring to watch him work. I mean, even like the opening of beauty and the beast, it's so, I don't know, you know, he does this narration uh, and then the credits are, you know, somebody writing in chalk. Um, I love it. And I, like, it's just so simple. And then we're transported into this, like lush fairy tale world that it's like, how, how does this come from, one man's mind and some might argue I, I i don't know what's what's renee claire's relation to this i mean definitely i would say there's some visual influence from people like christian berard who was the art designer and renee claire who i think either did production design or was like assistant director but to me this is clearly full-on cocktail and one of the things that i love so much about him is i feel like there are all these other interesting french artists from kind of around the same time maybe a little bit later who primarily thought of themselves as directors but cocktail and you know you mentioned this earlier him calling himself a poet whatever medium he worked in, he said, oh, this is just my poetry, whether yeah. it was drawing or actual writing or filmmaking as a director. And that's just, to me, such a fascinatingly different mindset is not going into it like somebody like Godard thinking, what can I do differently with cinema? But 
Cocteau seem to be focused more on what do I want to do with my poetry? And this feels like a poem in a way that most other films don't. They might want to, but don't. Here's here's a quote from from the man himself. He says, a film is a piece of writing and pictures, and I try to give it an atmosphere which will bring out the feeling in the film rather than than correspond to the facts. Writers tend to do that is that they try to make emotions like leap off the page. Poets, right? Like they try to grab you by the emotions with their words. And I think he does that with this movie. And like even that narration, he says, uh, children believe what we tell, or maybe it was a title card, I can't remember, but children believe what we tell them, they have complete faith in us. And and like, that's the one line that really stood out to me. It's this whole really beautiful thing. But like that alone right there, that, that one line, children believe what we tell them, they have complete faith in us. For me, like those words, I don't have to see shit. Those words completely <laughs> transform my mind and like transport me to like this land of imagination. And luckily, as a father, I get to do that every day with, you know, with my kids. But, you know, I'm sitting here at night by myself and I'm just like, fuck, yes, let's go. Take me. And I, you don't get that very often with movies. No. And That's one of the things that I think makes this film so special is that it's so perfect. Like, yes, as a work of cinematic poetry or a work of art or whatever you want to call it. But in a lot of ways, I think it's the perfect fantasy film Mm. because it does this thing that I think all truly good fantasy does where it appeals to that kind of instinctual child brain that everyone has without being specifically targeted to children. Right. And not that there isn't a lot of great children's fantasy that adults can't like as well. I mean, everyone on earth likes Harry Potter. So I I feel like that's a example of, of how it can attract such a wide audience, but this was I think one of the first sort of largely successful influential films to adopt a fairy tale and have it not specifically be a child's film. And it's such a fairy tale. Like you have all, and I've never read the, the original story, but like it has the tropes of the fairy tale that you would see in like Disney movies and it follows that stuff to a T. But like like you said, it's not, it doesn't seem like a kid's movie. But here we are. And I think, I mean, I can assume uh, he puts these words up at the at top of the film to put us adults in the mindset of children. And to me, those words just seem like uh, that told me that Cocteau loved like Walt Disney loved to uh, play around in imagination and loved to not take life so seriously. And I mean, I, you know, you and I were just talking before we were recording about the stresses of life and wouldn't it be grand to be able to live like that, to like disappear into our imaginations. And uh, you know, this is, I think this is just proof. Beauty and the beast is just proof that like, 
these guys do and then uh, live in their imaginations and then uh, so perfectly can visualize that and bring us the viewer into their imagination yeah and i think what's so incredible about cocteau and his whole general scene is that a lot of those guys the the surrealists especially were people who lived in their imaginations but also brought those imaginary worlds to life and radically challenged things like socially accepted norms and the way relationships should be and the way careers should be the way art should be i mean when you think about somebody like cocteau who in the 20s and 30s and 40s lived as an openly gay man basically which was illegal yeah and cast his longtime partner jean Marais, in the you know lead roles of many of his films from this period but partner like lover yeah no shit i didn't know that yeah they were together for at least a decade but were very close for several decades oh wow love it okay go ahead i'm sorry no no i just i i think he did so many just wonderful radical things with this film and his career in general but I think you could watch this not knowing anything about him and not really pick up on any of that and what I find so amazing about that is so in the 40s during World War II so the time when the film was initially conceived France was occupied by the Nazis and there was definitely more freedom for filmmakers to work in France. Like the, they, they had to follow all of these, you know, insane rules, but there was way more flexibility than if you were trying to make films in Germany or Austria. And the way that a lot of French filmmakers got around some of those rules was by making fantasy films. Mm. And I'll talk about some of those when we get to our recommendations, but a lot of what you see here shows up in some of those earlier films, this idea that in this world of fantasy and imagination, nothing has any power over you. There's no suffering. You can escape from it through things like love and imagination. And so I just, the way that this starts off where her family is so terrible, it's a little bit, I mean, I know that that's in the Disney version too. Right to a degree where she's the one who sort of has to take everything on herself. But here it just, they're almost, the sisters are just like so comically awful (laughs) in such a wonderfully exaggerated way (laughs) that it gives it this real sense, like even in those non-fantasy scenes that are supposed to take place at the family home and, you know, Belle is there as a servant for her sisters, there's even in those scenes this sense of kind of unreality like everything is artificial in a certain way and i just love that about it so much oh me too well i i have a note so i love the look of of like old villages you know sort of that uh that sort of like dickensian uh feel and uh, this is like it seems like it's pre charles dickens but you know, oh yeah, definitely. Uh, the the Czech version of Beauty and the Beast 
Like, I really love that village because it just seems so, you know, a little dirtier, a little grungier. There's fires out in the, you know, in the in, in the paths and, you know, the, the homeless people kind of warming themselves uh, just by fire. But I love the, the stone buildings and I'm with you, like... For me, like, and that's enough to, like, transport me to this world. But then Cocteau takes it, like, a million miles further when we get into the Beast's world. It seems like a totally different universe. And, uh, again, we see this man, Jean Cocteau's imagination, like, come to life. To be there with the, you know, be a fly on the wall during the production meetings, with him with the designers like okay I, I see this I want this I want this and just like that dream session of these people just sitting around and coming up with these just grand ideas is so cool uh, to imagine being there. I wish I could live in that castle um, for anyone who hasn't seen this yet I mean spoilers aren't really an issue because if you don't know the story of Beauty and the Beast by now like I can't help you but <laughs> there are these amazing sequences where there are just sort of disembodied arms holding candles and candeliers and or chandeliers and like you can see how clearly it influenced the disney version where all the objects in the castle are sort of anthropomorphized and come to life and talk to her mm-hmm. it's not quite as cartoonish or childlike but that happens here although it feels way creepier yes it like there's something a little bit more sinister about it and statues come to life and even these sorts of great like sculptural masks set in the wall will open their eyes and look around and it's just you could watch this so many times and still find new things just from that castle those castle sequences alone or it's just incredible absolutely well you know i i i would imagine even walt disney saw something like this and took inspiration from i mean just thinking about the and i've never been there but like the haunted mansion seeing you know video from inside there and and like watching the the the, that show the imagineering story on disney plus like it just seems like there's so much influence just for that world that disney type of world from Cocteau's world of Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you. The yeah, kind of the disembodied arms where it's all black, and you just see these arms, and then one by one, the candelabras are lit in their hands. And as the father kind of walks back down the hall, they all go out one at a time. And then the 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 arm in the middle of the table, like serving the food. Oh, it's so good. (laughs) And then those, gosh, I mean, the faces are super creepy and the walls, the imagination on display here leaves you breathless. Okay, let me ask you this. What do you remember the first time you saw this movie? I was pretty young. Um, I want to say I was like 18 or 19, maybe. Because I got really into... French literature as a teenager and I knew about Cocteau as a surrealist before I knew about him 
as a filmmaker. Mm. I, so I had this very weird experience. So I was, you know, quiet, nerdy kid in elementary school, spent most of my time in the library. And there were certain books that I think you weren't supposed to check out until you were a little bit older. But when I was like, probably like nine or 10, I found this book on Dada and surrealism. It was like a history of surrealism and definitely probably not age appropriate, but like the librarians didn't even think twice because I was constantly checking things <laughs> out. And there were a bunch of his photographs and drawings in there. And so finding that book really turned me on to so many things. Like there was a mention of some of the early surrealist films, but like, of course, I couldn't get a hold of them for years right. and so I think this is the first one that I was actually able to see and it was nothing like what I expected I mean I think it does sort of lull you at first into this sense of like okay especially watching it anytime after the 70s probably I think something that you brought up kind of connects to I think where my mind was when I first saw this. So, so many people set their fairy tale adaptations in these like 17th, 18th century villages. And I feel like Cocteau was one of the first people to do that with a film adaptation, but there's definitely something like when you see those villages, you think, oh, okay, we're in some sort of fairy tale. Right. So watching that and already having seen so many more kind of mainstream modern fairy tales, it was like, okay, I see where we're going. And then within five minutes, it's like, I don't see where we're, what's happening here. <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember being so blown away so I think up until the point where the Bell's father kind of goes on his journey and he enters into these dark woods through the forest and he ends up at the beast's joint. Uh, it's a pretty typical sort of fairy tale beginning. We get to meet the shitty characters. We get to meet the the the, the princess right at the beginning and and maybe her hero. But then the score is this like kind of gothic sounding oh. music and like oh it's just like these sweeping orchestral kind of haunting sounds and it's great and it's so he's walking through the 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 forest at night and then the, the fog and these these huge orchestra sounds and then of course like the you know the foley artists are like banging on the sheets of tin for you know to mimic thunder and we're in a different movie at that point like because again you know i'm 30 when i saw this for the first time like 36 or 37 i'm well aware of the beauty and the beast story you know the dozens of times it's been shown on film and tv and on broadway and so i was like okay yeah yeah, yeah. typical 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 and then you get to that point and it gets dark and like i said like kind of this gothic feel um, and then with the castle, like I, I, I get this really gothic feel with the with the beast castle. And what's funny with the so when I watch the Czech version, it's so scary, so scary. And I know you have you did commentary right with Cat and Mike, right? Yeah, yeah. For the for the Blu-ray of that that just came out, but that leans into it super hard, and like that's definitely like the horror version of it. And I love, yeah. I, I actually think I like that one more than cocktails. I mean, it's 
the so Uri Hertz, I think, was doing something. So actually, there are a bunch of Czech fairy tale adaptations that came out in the 70s that I think serve a similar function to what I was talking about earlier with films made under the Nazi occupation that are using fantasy as a way to be a little bit more transgressive and subversive than cinema censors would allow. And that Hertz version is just so menacing because the the beast is like a weird bird creature and <laughs> looks nothing like so I feel like if you grew up watching the Disney version and then you saw the Cocteau version afterwards, the Disney version kind of poisoned the well a little bit because they're clearly modeling the beast after Cocteau's beast yes. makeup, which the thing that I have, I don't want to say regrets about, but maybe curiosity about is originally the beast was going to have a stag head because Cocteau wanted something that was pagan influenced and Kernunos, who's this sort of Celtic earth deity, like a Lord of the forest basically has this stag head. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But they they didn't really like the way the makeup looked. And so the makeup is modeled after Jean Marais dog, this husky. (laughs) 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 So it's like he's playing his own dog, basically. But there's something so strange about that beast makeup. So even though it's not nearly as scary as the Uri Hertz version <laughs> that you're talking about, it would be so easy to make the beast kind of like a werewolf character, but he's such a weird blend of having these beast animal instincts, but also being really kind of like passive and subservient in yep. a strange way that makes me a little uncomfortable. <laughs> Well, it, like, I have a note that's like, uh, what does it say? Like, does the beast have a self confidence issue? And obviously, like, you know, that's he has this sort of self deprecating thing where you know he he doesn't think he's worthy. Um, he doesn't want to be called sir. Call me beast. And so I, you know, yeah, I, he tells her she's the master, <laughs> right? And you know, so I I didn't know if like is that a humility thing? Is that a confidence thing? But the way. Uh, what's his name? Moreau? Uh, Jean-Marie. Jean-Marie. Like, the way he plays it is so, you know, he he does this thing with his voice. Also, I want to, a uh, little side note, not until the second time I'm watching this and I'm kind of like flipping on, um, I'm checking, you know, cast on IMDb while I'm watching it, and I didn't realize that was the the dude. Like, Jean-Marie was the, oh, what's what's the nor uh avenant oh and, avenant yeah like the guest yeah i didn't realize that was the same guy so one uh incredibly impressive makeup uh but then he does this thing with his voice that makes it unrecognizable i think for you know maybe practical purposes but also makes him seem really menacing and he does like you know a few times he like growls at bell and yeah. you know i think the way he portrays this character of beast is you know we probably all grew up on the the disney version and so you know it's very just you know one-dimensional characters i feel like which is fine for god's sakes it's a children's cartoon uh but then you watch this and like you have this like multi-dimensional like 
very complicated, not just like evil, scary beast type of character, but like this human being dealing with all sorts of these like fucked up emotions and how could you blame the guy? Uh, but I just, again, the second time watching this, I was so impressed with his performance as the beast. Yeah. There's so much going on there. And in that great intro you were talking about, uh, he he has this line where he says, you know, children believe what we tell them, blah, blah, blah. They believe that the hands of a human beast will smoke when he slays a victim and that this will cause him shame when a young maiden takes up residence in his home. They believe a thousand other simple things. And the fact that he calls those things simple, it's like nothing in this movie is really that simple. Right. But the thing that I noticed a lot more watching it this time around is so I've always been very frustrated with Belle's character in general throughout various adaptations, but specifically here because she's sort of in this miserable situation of her own accord where, you know, she lives at home, she's forced to be a servant and take care of her sisters and her father is this like deadbeat whose attempts to make money never really work out and her brother puts the family further into debt because he's always gambling but it's not a cinderella story where she's forced to live with family who's not her actual like blood relatives right. because in this in cinderella there's a reason why she's forced to be their slave and she has really no other choice. But here it's entirely her own choice. It's like she just puts up with them treating her horribly and her brother and her father never stand up for her. They just sort of let the status quo happen. And there's this really weird, and I, I forgot about this whole subplot where Avenant, her brother's friend, who, as you just mentioned, is also played by Jean Marais. Avenant, in the beginning of the film, tells her how he feels about her. He says he's going to, you know, change his ways and they'll get married and settle down and he'll work really hard. And he seems genuine. And she turns him down for no good reason. And I always assumed that she turned him down because she didn't have feelings for him, sort of like in the Disney Beauty and the Beast where he's just this jackass and she has no interest in it. But at the end of the film, she actually admits that she did have feelings for him. So it seems like, okay, you could have gotten out of this awful domestic situation by marrying this guy that you like. So why didn't you? And I can't help but feel, and this is probably my World War II research brain taking over, but I can't help but feel like some of Belle's treatment and the way she allows herself to be treated is a little bit of a comment on the occupation. It's sort of like people are allowing themselves to be subjugated and dominated and they could resist or they could do something about it, but they don't. And it's such a weird, like the way that her character plays out in the film is so weird. Josette Day, I mean, the first thing that, that comes to my mind when I'm watching her is Marlena Dietrich. Like, she, it seems like she's playing this Marlena Dietrich sort of character. Um, oh, I don't think Marlena Dietrich would ever have put up with that bullshit. <laughs> no, uh, no, I, and 
<laughs> no, because she, yeah, obviously she, a few episodes ago, we talked about Scarlet Empress and obviously like that character does not put up with any shit in that movie, but she plays Marlena Dietrich before Marlena Dietrich like decides enough is enough. For instance, in the Scarlet Empress, like Dietrich is, she's kind of this wide eyed girl from podunk nowhere. And she's in this like new situation and Inside, she's kind of screaming. She's like, what the fuck do I do? This is horrible. But then enough becomes enough. And she like, you know, says, fuck everybody. I'm ruling the world now, which is awesome. And I feel like Josette Day, Belle, I agree with you. Like she doesn't get to that point where she decides to say, fuck everybody. I'm going to make my own decisions. You know, she goes from one sort of uh, shitty existence with her family waiting on them hand and foot to living in this castle where she's beast is treating her as queen, but she's also kind of a prisoner. Right. But then she, she, he lets her go back and she goes back to the, the family and she still feels beholden to him. Love the whatever, but still I, I would love to see a moment where in the movie, or the story again. I, I've never read the story. I don't know how it goes originally, but where she does sort of um, stand up for herself. Danny mentioned something at the end. He he hates the transformation scene at the end, where Beast ends up looking like Avnot, and is that because that's what she, that's what Belle wants him to look like? That's what I assume. Because there's that moment where she, so there's all this stuff that seems to be going on related to kind of repressed desire, maybe, because like we talked about, she rejects Avenant in the beginning, but then in the end, when Beast transforms into him, she seems really uncomfortable and he even asks her, does this face or does the way that I look bother you? And she says, yes. And then she kind of blushes and says, okay, well, actually, no. And something about that I found really disturbing this time around because it's like Beast, in the original version of the story and in a lot of the adaptations, the way it goes is, you know, he's a human who does something wrong. And so this witch turns him into a beast. Here, the explanation is like, it's the most insane explanation. It's like his parents, which I'm pretty sure that this is not in the original story. It's like his parents didn't believe in magic. So a fairy cursed him and turned him into a beast. But then it gets weirder because so in most versions of the story, he does something fucked up. He gets cursed and turned into a beast. And then when a woman falls in love with him, it undoes the curse and he can go back to being a prince or at least go back to being mortal, some rich guy. But in this version, it's like Cocteau just makes the end really weird because Avenant and Belle's brother break into the castle and they're trying to steal Beast's treasure. And as Avenant is lowering himself down into this room, this statue, which I think is supposed to be Artemis, the, the oh, goddess of the moon, yeah. who rolls around with a bow and arrow, you know, shooting unworthy men. She's also a goddess of virginity. She shoots him with an arrow. He dies. And the moment he dies, the beast transforms into him. 
And they have that whole exchange where she admits that she actually did love Avenant and now the beast looks like him. And then he says to her, he basically says, I'm from another dimension. Yeah. I'm going to take you there and there you'll be a queen. So it's like, okay, so you're some alien beast who is taking on the face of my ex-boyfriend and now we're gonna go up into the stars to another dimension like what the hell is that and they literally (laughs) fly away at the end up into the stars (laughs) (laughs) it's so deeply weird it it is very and again i i don't know if i love it i don't hate it i don't know if i love it or don't like it it's weird and it's original and for that i appreciate the hell out of it and i just i love that danny like he's so pissed off that the beast (laughs) turns into quote a prissy prince (laughs) i mean jean marais was also an openly gay man who part of his appeal was that he had that pretty boy look there's no denying he is a very good looking guy although i couldn't help but see michael shannon like (laughs) for me like michael shannon looks so much like that it's oh my god he he does and i have never thought about that until now yeah michael shannon looks like him if jean marais like became straight and was your dad Exactly. Like maybe not younger Michael Shannon, but like Michael Shannon now ish. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, well, I, I noticed that, especially watching Orpheus, because you see, you know, he's in the entire, he's in every single scene in that movie. Yeah. And I was like, God, I he think looks they like have Michael the same, Shannon. they have the same nostrils. Yeah. <laughs> well, and they like, they kind of have this like brow ridge yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah. Crow Magnum sort of brow. Um, anyways, I, so, so I watched uh, Orpheus the day before I rewatched Beauty and the Beast. And so I'm watching Beauty and the Beast. I'm like, God damn, Michael Shannon, what the hell? I, I was just on my mind the whole time. But then, then when I reread Danny's essay after watching the movie again, I was like, you know what? I kind of agree with you. I don't know if like he does turn into this weird like fairy thing because, well, you know, uh, Okay, he didn't believe in magic. So they were like, we'll show you. Yeah, and so a fairy curses him. So obviously, like, that's from a different world than this sort of realist world that we're in, that Belle is from. And so she is swept away to this weird Mm -hmm. kingdom, which I wouldn't mind seeing what's happening after that. Uh, I know, I want, where's the sequel? (laughs) Beauty and the Space Alien. (laughs) fabulous fabulous i would love that i i do want to say uh beast there are a few instances where he's like a real moody pisser where he really is like that time okay so she's i don't know if she's eating or putting on makeup whatever he still doesn't want her to look at him and so he like runs away to like the you know the he's standing on a wall or the dike or something around his his castle and he's just out there like brooding he's like she doesn't love me and i'm like good god man like there are times where you're cool as shit but then there are other times where it's like man up like for god's sake he's he's definitely listening to the smiths on his (laughs) earbud headphones while he's outside crying exactly it 
It definitely is some real sad bastard shit. And I think the Disney version picked up on it a little bit because Beast can be really scary in the Disney version or at least like, you know, ferocious. But he is also just such a moody, grumpy bastard. But here it's not like I'm going to have a tantrum and break some things. It's like, I'm going to roll around in the grass. Like, Oh, whoa, <laughs> me. Well, okay. So we meet Belle and her sisters. We meet her sisters first at the beginning of the movie. And they're in these like, you know, gigantic opulent hoop dresses, like Victorian dresses and like these, just these gigantic fucking collars. They're so and, funny. <laughs> and so, and, and, you know, they're, God, they're just so dramatic. Uh, and it is very funny. Like when they want to go to town, they have their, their little t- taxi driver boys that like carry their little it's, rickshaw, whatever it's they are. So good. It's yeah, it is very good. Very funny. And they make the joke about the one, they're almost like two-sided rickshaws yeah. where it's like you need a guy, I forget what they're called, but it's, it's the most bullshit rich person thing. It's like instead of having some wheels on there, you need a guy in the back and a guy in the front to carry them. And there's this great subtle little joke where the the one sister sort of yells at the guy and accuses him of being drunk, maybe or tripping. Yeah. But visually, the suggestion is just like maybe she's too heavy or her skirt is too big. And it's not that it's his fault. It's that like he shouldn't be carrying this. <laughs> so these two women are like just so overly dramatic and like, um, you know, Avenant and and the brother, you know, tease them about it. And so uh, Belle, you know, she's I mean, God, she's sold right to the beast by her father. And it turns out she's now living with this this thing that dresses like her sisters, the giant collars, and is as moody and dramatic as her sisters. And so I I just thought that was really funny. You know, she goes from one kind of nightmarish instance living in that house to another. From one bitchy queen to another. (laughs) Beast the bitchy queen, that's right. And then, okay, so at the end, Beast is like dying at the shoreline, right? And there's these two swans there. Belle runs down to him. And those swans are like jabbing and hissing at them. And I was just. I don't even think I noticed that. It is like scary. I don't know if you've ever. Because swans can be scary because they're, you know. I was attacked by a swan as a child. They're real bastards. They are. They're so scary. (laughs) And like up close, they're a lot fucking bigger than you think they are. Anyways, these two swans are like jabbing and hissing at these two actors trying to like go through this super dramatic melodramatic scene and i'm like oh my god these swans are gonna fucking attack them um (laughs) just something you know next time you watch beauty and the beast for anyone watching it just the swans watch yeah it's so funny anything else you want to talk about this movie before we move on i don't think so just i agree with you that it might not be so like yes it's really influential it has all this amazing stuff going on but i think from an emotional storytelling standpoint there is something very weird about it and so it might not feel as like romantically or emotionally resonant as maybe some of the later fairy tale adaptations and there's this real weird thing happening with romance and relationships that I think the more you watch it the more 
that stands out, at least to me, how Belle's whole thing seems to not be about love. It seems to be about obligation. And so her feelings for the beast are like she's obligated to be there. It's like she doesn't want anyone to love her romantically. She wants to feel like somebody depends on her. It's such a weird dynamic. Do you think... That's part of what I love about it. Yeah, definitely. Do you think that maybe... So this is a time in the world where like being queer was like you said i mean straight up illegal yeah you had to have real brass balls to be publicly open about your sexuality do you think and this is uh he wrote did he write this right cocteau yeah okay do you think and i i you know as you were talking i was like is it because a, a man wrote this but i'm wondering if it's because he was a queer person in a time where it was illegal to be queer writing this story this romance story where he uh wasn't uh 100% comfortable slash capable of like communicating that in his own life that you know that's romantic feelings maybe I I don't know because it you know the more we talk about it the more the sort of romantic aspect of uh, this Beauty and the Beast kind of stands out to me again I'm with you 100% it's one of the reasons I love it. It's just really strange and, and different than a lot of romantic movies. Yeah, I think it could just be that his goal was not to tell a romantic story. That component just happens to exist in the fairy tale. Although I will say, for anybody who hasn't seen Les Enfants Terribles, the, which Cocteau wrote the novel of the same name and then Jean-Pierre Melville adapted it into a film with the script by Cocteau. It's absolutely incredible, has a similarly gothic feel. Like it's not a period fairy tale, but it takes place in this kind of mansion that's falling apart and it's this really tormented love triangle between a brother and a sister and the sister's paramour and so it's like he can do romantic relationships but i don't know if he can do happy ones or ones that are ones that are uncomplicated so i think what's going on here is that he has no interest in telling a story about romance yeah that's the only possible (laughs) explanation i can come up with no i i think you're right yeah because i mean Obviously, like there's so much more richness to everything else besides the romantic aspect of Beauty yeah, and the Beast. Yeah, it's like he just skips right over it. Yeah, and like folk. Yeah, because I mean, honestly, the the rest of it. That's the reason I love it. You know, the fucking disembodied uh, limbs in the castle, and the makeup, and the the costume. And the mirror. And, yeah, yeah, the yeah. mirror that talks to her. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, oh God, there's so much to love about this movie. And yeah, I completely agree. I think if you haven't seen this, and uh, it was only because of Danny's book that I had even heard of this, um, and which is the reason I watched it in the first place. So yeah, if you haven't seen this, I highly recommend it. It is so, so great. It's very cool. And again, it's one of those older movies that you can watch and be like, holy shit, the influence this had on so much else is crazy. Yeah, it's truly one of a kind. Okay, let's transition into the second portion of the show here and our pairing recommendations. 
Sam and I have come up with three each that we would recommend maybe pairing with John Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. So Sam, let's hear your first one. Okay, this is really hard because there's so many different directions I could have gone with this, like other Cocteau movies or other Beauty and the Beast adaptations or other really great fairy tale adaptations. But what I decided to do since I brought this up earlier in the episode is to talk about some more French fantasy films from the 40s that I think have really interesting themes of resistance and subversion. Oh, wow. So all three movies that I'm going to talk about have certain things in common. Um, One of them does involve Cocteau himself, but they often take these like medieval or period settings. They have these protagonists who are pitted against devils and monsters. They're often being held prisoner. Um, And kind of like I was saying earlier, a lot of them have this overall message that love and the inner life of the imagination are resistant to violence and domination and, and, you know, being subjugated. So the first one is this Marcel Carnet film called Les Visiteurs du Soir, which it means the visitors of the evening, but the English language title is The Devil's Envoys, and that's from 1942. And it's basically about these two characters who are envoys of the devil. They basically are sent places to do mischief, and they show up at this castle right before the Baron's daughter is going to get married. It's like they're her engagement party. They show up and they're taken in as honored guests. And they're really just there to cause absolute chaos. But the ma- the male, so it's a male and a female, the, these two envoys. And the woman is played by Arletti, who is one of the best French actresses from this period. And her performance is so great. But the male, uh, G, he falls in love with the Baron's daughter and the Baron's daughter falls in love with him. And so it winds up being this whole thing where the devil is just enraged that one of his envoys has, you know, betrayed his trust. And it's just this wonderful, it, it's most definitely a fantasy film, but it has so many great like themes of resistance. So I don't, I don't want to say anymore. I know Criterion put it out as part of a collection, I think. So it is available. It might even be on the Criterion channel, but that's one that's a little easier to find. So you said a lot of these filmmakers, especially in this era, in this part of the world, kind of go to fantasy in order to kind of follow the legal logistics um, of filmmaking of this time? Yeah, I so I think that's pretty commonplace. It definitely happens in the cinema of Soviet-occupied territories as well, where directors are able to find a little more freedom when they make fantasy films or they make films that are historically set. Like mm. the, Czech, the Czech Beauty and the Beast is a great example. The, this Czech film called Witch Hammer that uh, Mike and I also did a a commentary for the upcoming uh, Severin release of that. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, for some reason, the censors, I think, are just like, oh, this is about something that happened two years ago. This is fine. (laughs) (laughs) And then two years later, they're like, 
wait, this isn't fine. Let's this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, so what's funny is that I would say I hate fantasy films, but originally when I would think fantasy, I would think Lord of the Rings and dragons and shit like that. And like, I, that's a snoozer for me. I, I, I cannot get into that kind of stuff. But I have to remember fantasy also encompasses sort of these kind of fairy tale type of stories, which I am so into, obviously, Beauty and the Beast. Hello. So the reason I ask about kind of the parts of the world and the time of whenever these were made is because that really fascinates me that filmmakers or storytellers are almost forced to use another medium or whatever, for lack of a better term, to kind of get their uh, ideologies across or whatever. And that fascinates me. And so I'm really interested into kind of diving into uh, world cinema that kind of delves or that, that deals with that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I don't think it's always super intentional or a conscious thing. Right. I think sometimes it's circumstantial and some of these directors have come out and said like no i'm just trying to make a fantasy film but when you look at them as a body of films and there are at least a dozen of them made in france in the 40s it's like come on guys right well (laughs) you know i've talked about it so many times with other people that you can be writing something and i mean this this happens in the the plays and musicals that i write that i'll be writing something just a story that I like and that I want to tell that has no purposeful kind of uh, autobiographical connotations or whatever. And then you go back and read it and you're like, oh shit, look at that. I was influenced without even knowing it, you know, and and I think that happens a lot with with storytellers. Definitely. Um, Okay, so for my three what I did, I was having a hard time kind of figuring out which direction am I going with this? Like, what the hell can I pair with a fairy tale from France from the 40s? And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to lean into it and go with sort of other movies that could be considered fairy tales. And so the first one. I know I don't know if it was you or maybe Charles said something when I was watching it, but uh, Bell Book and Candle. Why, it's Mr. Henderson. Oh well, are you having fireworks? I'm sorry to disturb you. I just thought the place was going up in flames. Oh no, it's nothing like that. It's just uh, a little game that we play. <laughs> Well, it seems rather dangerous, but uh, go right ahead with it. No, no, no. It's all right. We'd finished. And uh, Nicky, I'm terribly tired. I must be leaving. Good night. Huh? I think everything's working out wonderfully. Merry Christmas. Oh, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Thanks again for the uh, present. Good night, Mr. Henderson. Right. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Uh, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Oh, it's so good. I made Charles watch it last Christmas. Christmas. Okay, so yeah, that was, yeah, gosh. It's magical. Not pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> I watched this for the first time a few years ago. I was doing a podcast, and we were doing a show on, like, witch movies. And so I came across this one. I was like, oh, my God, how charming is this? And like so this, this, you know, this could be a yearly Christmas watch. That's so funny because when you were on for Castle Blanky, you brought up we're no is it we're no angels. 
Yes, that, I yeah. love Lino Angel so, so much. That's we have we have to incorporate some sort of Christmas movie every time we talk. I mean, I love Christmas movies. <laughs> me, I can't help myself. Me too. Well, <laughs> and especially like these not, you know, I started this letterbox list of uh, I'm just calling it like unconventional Christmas movies. Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, yes, blah, blah, blah. But like you have, like you wouldn't think of Bell, Book, and Candle as a Christmas movie. But it is. But it totally it, is. It's a total Christmas. So Also, Kim Novak is... Oh, my God. The, she is, she's so hot that my only problem with Bell, Book, and Candle is I can't imagine her wanting to be with Jimmy Stewart of all people. <laughs> <laughs> like, was she cursed by another witch and that's why she wound up with him? You know what's so funny? You have this just like... I mean, she's at times, she, she oh, I, I mean, I'm a sucker for like that sort of deep raspy. I just watched Cannery Row with uh, Deborah Winger and she was like one of my early crushes because of that deep raspy voice. Anyways, uh, but like there's times in Bell Book and Candle where Kim Novak is she's almost acting like this succubus. And I'm like, oh, just take me, do whatever you want with me. But it's so funny. So you have that. And then I agree with you, like Jimmy Stewart. Who I love, how can you not? But then you have like the goofball of Jack Lemon as her brother. <laughs> He's is, so good. <laughs> as the bongo player at this like secret witch jazz club is just the best. It's such a charming movie. And Elsa Lanchester. Does she play the older witch? Yeah. Holy shit. That's what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't even realize that. Oh my god, she's so good. She she plays just this like dotty kind of clueless, almost burns the house down. <laughs> Her spells are out of control and she lives upstairs, but she also has that sort of like older lady knows more than she lets on is kind of like wise and caring and she and jack lemon are just such a great duo oh it's so good yeah just the chemistry between everybody works out so well and it's you know again funny charming it's very romantic and it's a christmas movie to boot bell book and candle totally recommend it i wrote down no notes for that that's why i was i'm, I'm glad you love that movie too so good. Best best cat in cinema, Pie Wacket. <laughs> I hate cats, but I love Pie Wacket. Pie Wacket's great. Okay, let's hear your second one. So my second one is this absolutely wonderful film from Maurice Tourneau, who is the father of Jacques Tourneau, who I think more people will be familiar with. He is also a director. He made this movie called Le Monde du Diable, which is like the hand of the devil. And of course, both of my first two movies have devil in the title. <laughs> uh, it's basically this expressionistic Faustian tale of this struggling artist who just can't get his shit together. And he meets this guy in a bar or a restaurant who offers to sell him this talisman. It's this mummified hand he'll sell it to him for one cent and it will do everything he wants it to do. But of course there's a different price, but it is so incredible. It has this really gorgeous, like I said, expressionistic cinematography and all of these like fantasy set pieces that are so gorgeous. And my favorite thing about it. So again, this is a 1943 film made at the height of the occupation and the figure of the devil is a bureaucrat wearing this bowler hat, looks like an office worker. And it's clearly 
some really obvious, almost probably offensive at the time, <laughs> commentary on Vichy and the politicians who teamed up with the Nazis and sort of allowed the occupation to go down the way it did. And mm. it's just, I don't know how we got away with it because it's pretty <laughs> it's pretty obvious. But it's great to see such an early depiction of the devil as this like, regular businessman yeah. and I know something similar would happen in film noir a couple of years later but it's it's a really wonderful movie it seems like a lot of people haven't even heard of it so I strongly recommend it but there are it's definitely less fantastical than the devil's envoys or beauty and the beast but it still has some great like kind of also scary fantasy set pieces yeah oh wow that's fun. what's the what's the director's name maurice torno maurice torno okay wow that is really fascinating i uh i do love different depictions of the devil especially set as like regular humans uh where mm-hmm. it's you know it's obvious devil's advocate being one i'm so intrigued by this um okay i went uh like i said more fairy tale this one is an opera Mm. and uh because i don't know why but i've been on an opera kick lately and uh so i decided to watch ingmar bergman's the magic flute So I love the magic flute, the, the Mozart opera. This is one, there, there's one uh, section of one of the songs that everybody would recognize. But anyway, so we open with like during the entire overture, he has shots of the crowd and he just holds on these people watching the orchestra play. And you're like, okay, so this is going to be like a filmed, like he's just going to film the stage of this opera okay but then it cuts to like close-ups on so we're like in a real movie now and it's the magic flute is playing out and then we go backstage to where uh papa gino like he's it's almost his call (laughs) and so we're backstage with like the actor playing papa gino he's laying down on like a cot or something he's like oh shit i gotta go and he gets up and he grabs his pan flute and he runs out on stage And it's so interesting. And, you know, Bergman does this. He, like, takes us from world to world within, like, one single story. And, like, that in and of itself is fairy tale-esque. But anyway, so if you you don't know, the magic flute is about uh, a guy called Tamino. And he's this prince. He falls in love with a, uh, a girl named Pamina by only seeing her picture. 
And so Pamina has been whisked away by her father and supposedly held against her will. So Pamina's mother, the queen of the night, tells Tomino she will promise her daughter's hand in marriage if he can rescue her, bring her back home. So along with this piper, Papagino, Tomino goes to win the hand of his love. But when he gets there, like he learns like the real story and it's the music is beautiful. What really fascinated me, though, this is the first Swedish opera I've seen. So I, you know, uh, Mozart, German. I've heard this in German, of course. But hearing an opera in Swedish was so fascinating because, uh, you know, I'm kind of slowly working my way through the Criterion Bergman set. And I'm falling more and more in love with that language. But then hearing it sung, I was just like, oh, my God, this is the most beautiful thing in the world. It's so cool. Have you seen this one? Yes, it's been quite a while, but yeah, it's, I mean, I grew up, so I was mostly raised by my grandparents and my grandmother was an opera singer. So oh, I shit. grew up surrounded by opera, especially German opera. So nice. I, I want to say the first time I watched this actually was with her when I was pretty young. Oh, cool. Yeah, man, it is so fun. It's, it's such a great story. And then again, kind of Bergman, doing this weird shit where he's backstage and he's in the audience and he's on stage and it's it's really fun uh but totally recommend it um all right sam let's hear your third one well quick question yes. have you seen herzog blaubartsberg no which is not is a tongue you... twister <laughs> yeah so say it again herzog blaubartsberg blaubartsberg uh, it's a Hungarian opera from Bella Bartok. It's a version of the Bluebeard story, but Michael Powell did a film version of it that is highly recommended. If you are into opera what? and you like uh, Magic Flute, definitely. I think if you just look up Michael Powell Bluebeard or Bluebeard's Castle, you'll be able to find it. I want to say it's on YouTube. I don't think it's ever been restored, but highly recommended. Holy shit, I had no idea. He also, the name is escaping me. He and Emmerich Pressburger, around the time of the Red Shoes, also did a short that's, it's similar to Mickey and the Magic Broomstick, but it's like a live action musical fantasy short. It's incredible. Oh my God, what the hell? So good. All right, uh, yeah, that's uh shit. Well, yeah, like I said, I'm I'm on my opera kick right now, so... I'm getting right to that. Oh, yeah, you you have to. Hang on one second. I can tell you. God damn it. He's got so many films. That's what I was just going through. I was like, wait a minute. What the fuck? Like, how dare you have so many? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's The Sorcerer's Apprentice, and it's a oh, ballet. Okay. Oh, that's the one. I, I wanted to bring that up real quick about Beauty and the Beast and how balletic it was. Like, you know, yes. I, I mean, just, you know, how overly dramatic uh, Beast was, but like his movements were just so his figure. He, I mean, he's built he like, a dancer. like a dancer. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was so beautiful. That's another layer of of that movie that I was just uh, hypnotized by. Wait, something I forgot very briefly to bring up that I wanted to talk about earlier is I feel like I was thinking about how little dialogue there is. and. I think he's trying to intentionally throw back to silent films because some of the acting is so mannered and physical in that dancerly way that you're talking about. But 
parts of it, it looks like he wants to make a silent film. Like it would be fine with cue cards instead of the dialogue. This time around, I just was thinking how much silent film stuff is going on there. I think there's just so much to look at and like the visuals are so rich, but then you have, like I was just mentioning, the the sort of ballet of it all is, I mean, just watching it is enough without the dialogue. Um, so that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I, I can see um, how he might've been doing that. Okay, now actually getting to my <laughs> final recommendation. <laughs> Uh, which brings us back to Cocteau. And this film is called The Phantom Baron. It's by Serge Dupagny. It's also 1943. And it's much more whimsical than the other two that I mentioned. It's basically this gothic fantasy romance that takes place in this old castle. There's all this sort of like potential murder mystery stuff around an inheritance. The castle supposedly is cursed. This young uh, woman's ancestor was murdered and supposedly he's entombed somewhere in the castle. And so the phantom baron of the title is played by Jean Cocteau, who also co-wrote the script. So he shows up as this like ghost baron who gives his, it's almost like a Scooby-Doo episode. (laughs) (laughs) He, now that I think about it, he shows up to like give his ancestress advice and to kind of help her out. And it's so much fun. It's hard to, like, you basically kind of have to luck out and find a bootleg or a torrent though maybe since it's been a few years since I've seen it but maybe since then it's gotten a a better release but it's just so nice to see him act in a film yeah and he's so just whimsical is the only word I can think to use as the baron as as the ghost baron (laughs) yeah you know the after our conversation I like I'm just so fascinated by this man that I would, you know, I want to like know his mind and like this is just another portion that is fascinating about this guy. Hang on one second. There's this book that I just got that around here somewhere. <laughs> well, there are a million books in here. Sorry. I'll find it. I'll find the actual title and send it to you. But okay. it came out like two or three years ago and it's this really comprehensive biography of Cocteau. I've heard great reviews and I bought it actually probably not recently. I bought it at the beginning of quarantine thinking this is going to be, cause it's like it's a honking oh, giant wow. book. Um, but I will read it before the end of the year. Cause I've been dying to. And so I, I think that's something that probably you would also like. And it really goes into everything from how he got started to the different projects he worked on and some of the difficulties he had uh, later in life. Yeah. And definitely his relationship with Jean Marais. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. You had mentioned it before, but uh, people who may be watching Beauty and the Beast that didn't know um, that he was a gay man. I just found that out tonight talking with you. I had no idea. And so it's just another reason I want to read more about him. Yeah. And I mean, that sort of stuff, it always fascinates me kind of what people come to the table with. And I like, I love doing research and knowing all of these sort of different angles and, you know, historical influences and things like that. 
Uh, the book, by the way, is by Claude Arnaud. It's it's just called Jean Cocteau, A Life. Okay. And it came out, I think, four years ago. But I am by no means somebody who thinks that you have to have all this background to properly watch a movie. Right. Like, I think somebody who comes to a film never having seen anything like it, not knowing anything about who made it or who's in it, can have just as fascinating, sometimes even more so of a viewpoint because they're such a blank slate. Like yeah. I have a friend who's an artist, but they're not really, they're not really a movie person, but they'll watch anything that you say, hey, this is interesting. And they'll ask such interesting questions because to me, so much of this is so deeply ingrained that I always think about things in certain ways. And so I think certainly somebody could watch this and have no idea about Cocteau as an artist or his personal life and probably come away with some strange and fascinating observations just because of how weird the film is. Right. Listen, like we're two movie obsessives here talking to probably movie obsessives. And my wife, bless her heart, keeps me grounded. So like last night, we're watching another Bergman movie. We're watching after the rehearsal. And she made this observation where, you know, after I've watched, I don't know, 20 of his movies, she said, you know, every time you put on one of these movies, I'm sitting here on my phone and I have to put it down and pay attention because in so many of his, his stories, Bergman, that is, he starts right in the middle. There's no backstory. So like after the rehearsal, like there's this whole history between this older director and this younger actress. And we don't get any of that. We're just right in the shit with them. And so she brought that up last night. I was like, oh, you're right. Like I, for some reason, I never would have thought about that. And so I think that's important, like to include perspectives from people who like watch movies obsessively and like research them and also people who just watch them for fun because like my wife showed me last night I was like Jesus Christ like that is to me that was so profound that that would have never crossed my mind and that's what I think makes it exciting to watch movies and talk about movies with so many different kinds of people totally agree okay uh my third one by the way I love our digressions in between each of these movies so many sorry <laughs> no please this is uh why i love talking with you okay my third one uh, another fairy tale you could say is from 1945 mm. co-written and directed by albert lewin from the oscar wilde novel the picture of dorian gray the gods have been good to you mr gray why do you say that because you have the most marvelous youth and youth is the one thing worth having I don't feel that, Lord Henry. No, you don't feel it now, but someday you'll feel it terribly. What the gods give, they quickly take away. Time is jealous of you, Mr. Gray. Don't squander the gold of your days. Live. Let nothing be lost upon you. Be afraid of nothing. There's such a little time that your youth will last, and you can never get it back. As we grow older, our memories are haunted by the exquisite temptations we hadn't the courage to yield to. The world is yours for a season. It would be tragic if you realize too late, as so many others do, that there's only one thing in the world worth having, and that is youth. Mm, it's so good. Uh, first time that I saw it was just this uh, like last week or two weeks ago. 
and oh. holy smokes, man, I was like blown away. Um, now listen, I I watch and I love old older movies, but I'm always surprised how some of these older movies like floor me, like just catch me completely off guard. And I don't know what it was about this movie exactly. I was just, you know, the performance by uh, who is it? Hurt is it? Hurt Hatfield, who um, looks like H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, does he really? <laughs> He looks so much like H.P. Oh Lovecraft. Oh, my gosh. Crazy. Yeah, so, like, just his look. I, like, that's the way he looks. Uh, bless him, but kind of a creep. I mean, you could definitely do these as a really interesting double feature if your theme was, like, fantasy films with gay subtext. Oh, my God, yes. Oh, my God, yes. Dorian Gray, it's all over the place. Oh, absolutely. It's not so much subtext as it is text. <laughs> Uh, yeah, let's be honest. Picture of Dorian Gray, super gay movie. Um, super gay book. But yeah, uh, Herd Hatfield, George Sanders, Donna Reed, who I am always in love with, Angela Lansbury. And, oh my God, a young, sassy Angela Lansbury. Like, I love, so, you know, we grew up with knowing Angela Lansbury, Murder, She Wrote, maybe Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, Beauty and the Beast, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I remember the first time I watched Gaslight a few years ago. Oh, good. I was like, holy shit, what? This is Angela Lansbury. And I knew her for, like, I'm a big Broadway guy. So I, you know, I knew her from Sweeney Todd. But, oh, man, her performances. So she plays like this sassy burlesque. Yeah, uh, kind of chorus girl yeah. type of. It's the character in the book that Sybil Vane that he thinks he falls in love with her, but really he doesn't. And then. It, you know, it yeah. goes bad quickly. <laughs> so he's the the movie opens up with this uh, guy, Dorian Gray. He's sitting for a painting and he sees this statue of a cat and he learns that, oh, this is an ancient Egyptian thing. And, you know, it says that you can make a wish upon it and it'll come true. And so he does. He says, uh, you know, I wish for <laughs> everlasting youth. And so as the movie progresses, he doesn't age, but the painting does. And people listening to this probably know the story anyways. But I would uh, hope so. The performances, again, my God, are so good. Hurt Hatfield, creep, but just amazing. Donna Reed is, man, I love her younger stuff. Like she plays yeah, I, these I have heartbreaking. A love. I have a secret love for Donna Reed. Oh, how can you not? She's just, oh, she's so great. Anyways, you know, I thought those, I was like, okay, what could, right off the bat, you don't think of these movies as fairy tales, but I was like, okay, these could be considered fairy tales. Bell, Book, and Candle, Magic, Flute, Picture, Dorian Gray. Oh, totally. And if you're ever in Chicago, you can see the painting from that film at the Chicago Museum of Art. Really? I'm full of random Oscar Wilde facts. I have a whole uh, tattoo sleeve of Oscar Wilde. <laughs> Or that's Oscar Wilde themed. Oh my God. <laughs> Big fan. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, Sam, this was so much fun. Thank you for joining me. Um, where can people find you online? People can find me at my Patreon, which you could just look up Sam Deegan. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Patreon all. It's just at Sam Deegan, S-A-M-M-D-E-I-G-H-A-N. 
Twitch of the Death Nerve. You can find anywhere you listen to podcasts. We're also on the Cinepunks Network, so you can find us on cinepunks.com. There are lots of other great cult movie and also music podcasts on there, too. Listeners, if you go to columbusvhues.com, you're going to find show notes and links to all that stuff. Um, make sure you support Sam. Uh, get the book. Join her Patreon. Listen to the podcast. Uh, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at Cult Movies Pod. You can follow me at AK Donnelly on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. A K D O E. Nope. A K D O N E L L Y. Thank you for listening. Next week we're back with Jonathan Hertzberg is coming back from Fun City Editions, and we're talking Two Lane Blacktop, Ooh. which I will. I just watched for the first time a couple weeks ago. Oh, it's so good. And uh, this will definitely be my discovery of the year. I can't imagine anything else is going to top it. Okay, Sam, thanks again. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. Sorry that I go on so many tangents. <laughs> I'm just very excited about Jean Cocteau. <laughs>